Hey, welcome to the Happy Rant Podcast. I'm Ted Cluck, joined as always by my good friends Barnabas Piper and uh, Ronald J. Martin. Uh, boys, I was uh, I was telling Barnabas off the air. It's just been a long day of uh, of extroversion, man. I've been on stage uh, for hours today, talking at meetings and leading a class, and uh, and now now I'm here yet again uh, talking. So uh, so I may I may lean on you two boys today if you don't mind a little bit. Uh, so lean into this with me if you would. We we will. We'll we'll join you on your uh, your journey. Yeah, we'll join me on my journey. You, yeah we'll yeah. Because ideally, I mean, don't take this the wrong way, but. I would rather be alone and not speaking uh, right now. But in lieu of that, I'm I'm glad to be with the two of you. <laughs> to be fair, you are kind of alone because you're probably sitting in an office by yourself. But I am. You man, do still have to heavenly. speak. That's kind of heavenly, believe me. Yeah. I, I mean, are we are, are we killing sort of the uh, sort of the the view that some people had that we do this all together live now though? Piper, I mean, is that? I don't know. I don't know that we've ever had that uh, that conceit. Well, with our we've audience, we've been pretty public that we live in different places. I mean, it regularly comes up that Ted lives in Middle Tennessee, and I live two hours away from him in Middle Tennessee, and you live in Somerville, Ohio. And so, uh, you guys are technically together. I'm the guy that's on the outskirts. Dude, here. I mean, Pipe I, and I are basically neighbors. Man. You guys are neighbors doing this podcast. And I, in I didn't. Houses. I didn't tell Ted this, but I was actually in the town where he lives a couple weeks ago for a few hours. What? Well, I mean, I was in and out in a few hours, so it wasn't. It wasn't one of those. I felt like if I had told you, it would have been like, "Oh, do you have 42 minutes free to?" Dude, son of a bee, I would have totally spent 42 minutes with Ted, you. Ted, are you going to need some time off air to like reconcile this with Piper? Because I'm I feeling am. like I'm, t- I'm a little hurt. Today, today may have been a bad day to bring this up because I feel like Ted's a, a little crusty today. Yeah. Dude, I'm, I'm not. I'm just, I'm just tired. You know, I mean, and th- this is a blow. I mean, this is like finding out your, you know, your neighbor had some huge life event that he didn't tell you about. You okay, know? L- yeah. let me let me vent for a moment. This is not yeah. at you by any means, Ted. No, no, just so talk. so. Anytime I ever post that I am in any place, so I, you know, headed to San Diego for work, somebody from that town will hit me up and go, hey, we should grab coffee while you're here. Most of the time, I don't really know these people. They're just somebody who they're, they're, you know, Twitter connections. You're just not making this any better, Piper. And, uh, and so... I, I I no longer announce when I am going places or really let people know when I'm there if I'm there like for work so I can just get in and get out. Is that cold hearted of me? Dude, no. I mean, I, I think it's just efficient. You know what I mean? You're, you you strike me as a very efficient guy. And, and honestly, Pipe, I kind of respect the fact that you didn't reach out to me um, because I wouldn't want to – I wouldn't want you to reach out out of obligation, and and if it would have stressed you out to like squeeze in a, a coffee with Big T, then uh, then I'm glad I'm glad you didn't do it. <laughs> you, you know what? Big you T, have, let me just say this: you have learned record. southern. I would, I would never not call you if I was in the same town as you. Baby, listen to me. If you were ever in Jackson, and you, you can call me. That would be. Well, would that would that be a, would that be an would that be an end game for us? I mean, would that, that be the, maybe that might be a game ender? You know, I, would that I don't be the end of the romance that. that we have cultivated now for years and years? Yeah. But yeah, you know what? You don't have you don't have that with Piper yet. So I think what he did, although very uh, cutting and hurtful, I think you guys will be able to maintain a relationship. I'm on the trying to maintain relational boundaries. Isn't uh, that Piper is trying to maintain boundaries? You know, he's got a kind of cold, like German efficiency about him, and and it's I respect true. that. Man. It's true. I mean, I, I hate respect it. You know what I mean? <laughs> you hate spect it. <laughs> I resent. I resent spect it. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, obviously, we have a lot to work through, man. We got a lot of our own stuff going on. As it we do got a lot do. of our own stuff we going do. on. I mean, people think you're just this 
this radio superstar and you have no problems and there's never any like awkwardness. But you know what? We've, we've always been an authentic program. Um, we have, and it's going to come out in the bio that we're currently uh, putting together for Lifeway right now. So the 600-page, like, presidential-length biography. It's going to be great. Pro- yeah. Call, called uh, Team of Rivals Part 2. Yeah, yes. I love it. The oral history of, uh, of, of The Happy Round. That would be a, a great seller. It would actually probably sell better than some of our other books, Big R. So, well, that's that's not saying a lot. Which isn't saying be. a whole heck of a lot, is it? Well, we got to finish that adult coloring book before we even think about other projects. <laughs> that was, that was the pre-colored one, right? Oh, I love it. Yes. Yeah, the world needs that, man. The world needs that. Well, gentlemen, the world also needs to hear our uh, our, our opinions on a matter or a variety of matters today, uh, three to be exact. Uh, but before we do that, pipe, uh, we've got a new sponsor. We new do. sponsor on board. We do. And uh, why don't you tell our our good listeners about uh, about our new sponsor? Right, so our sponsor for this episode is uh, Multnomah Books or Waterbrook Multnomah if you want the whole name. But specifically a book called Renovate, which is coming out in a couple weeks, releases middle of February from Leonce Crump, who is a pastor in Atlanta. Leonce, I, I got to know Leonce a few years ago. He's a really, really good guy. Uh, fun fact, he was also an All-American wrestler in college and played defensive end for the uh, Oklahoma Sooners. So... Uh, Wow. I don't know if that has anything to do with how good his book is, but it's just a fun trivia fact. Um, but Renovate is the name of the book. The subtitle is Changing Who You Are by Loving Where You Are. So it's a book about transforming your city, transforming your community by uh, by learning to view it through the lens of the gospel and bring the gospel into it. And the whole thing is really about uh, God's plan for transforming culture and transforming like subcultures, neighborhoods, things like that. And it's all built out of his experience moving to Atlanta to plant a church, which is Renovation Church, which is doing really, really well. But the challenges along the way uh, to get there, he planted it several years ago, I think about six years ago, and it's thriving now. And it's, it's a really surprising church because of how multicultural it is. It's not, uh, it doesn't really reflect Atlanta that well, which is what makes it surprising because Atlanta is, has a history of segregation. Lots of racial tensions has been a, you know, known for its, its violence and everything. So their church exhibits a lot of what he writes about. So it's a really, really good book for anybody who's a pastor, uh, anybody who's a church planter, anybody who is who's considering mission work or really just Christians who are looking to affect their neighborhood and see how does God intend to transform a neighborhood through me putting down roots in this place and learning to love my hood uh, as well as I can. And as a bonus, it's got a forward by Maddie Chandler, and we really love everything that Maddie Chandler does. So, so the book is Renovate, Changing Who You Are by Loving Where You Are by Leonce Crump. comes out February 16th, and uh, you can get it really anywhere books are available. So Amazon, Barnes and Noble, uh, you'll be able to get it at, in any Christian retailer as well. And, um, we will drop a link to it in the show notes on the blazing center. So if you're interested, go check there. Uh, you'll see links through all the social media feeds and everything. So check it out, renovate changing who you are by loving where you are by Leonce Crump from Multnomah books. Piper, you are the boss. You got a promo Ted and I's next book. I mean, that was incredible. Dude, isn't isn't Pipe unbelievable at the it promo? It was. I mean, that is literally a masterclass of yeah, book. Yeah, it promotion. really is. I'm I'm pretending to drop a mic here. 
Uh, you literally should be. I don't even know if I want to consider. Dude, you should knock over to, your podcast. Mike. Do we even need to continue with the program oh, after that? Is. I mean, no, no, we need to close the program until yeah, next let's time. Let's just shut it down right now. Rachel, man. the hell dance. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to and fro, to and far. Blah blah blah. Yeah, done. Good. I mean, after after that promo, I guess everything else is just blah blah blah. But maybe we should maybe we should add to that a bit. Maybe Nor do I even want to write another book after that promo. I'm done. If I, I had like done I'm that done. promo, it would. I think renovate is the last book that ever needs to be written. Right. Renovate is second only to the Bible. Buy, buy the book and, uh, and stop listening to the podcast and go buy Renovate. Dirt, dirty little secret about book promos. I was in publishing marketing for a whole lot of years. And, uh-huh. I, and so I have a fair amount of practice as well as a fair amount of experience in hearing terrible promos done by other shows. And so, mm-hmm. uh, so yes, I, I, I've practiced a lot. I have to admit, yeah, you don't have I, to justify it, man. However, whatever path got you to to that is is a good one. It's beautiful. It's a good one, absolutely. All right. Well, well, when you guys release your next book, which what is it, Bridezilla of Christ? Is that the name of it? Yeah, yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, uh, you shoot me, you shoot me the fact sheet, the press release, and a uh, and a digital copy, and I can put together a promo just like that for you. Boom. Done. All Deal. Right. Deal. All right, gentlemen. Well, uh, from that. Um, boy, I, I don't even know how to follow up that promo, Big R. I mean, I feel I know. Like it's, this is a, uh, it's, it's this is a radio moment it? in which no <laughs> matter what we do, yeah, it really is intimidating. And and I think I need to have coffee with Pipe, if only just to rehumanize him again, to realize <laughs> he's a real person, you know. Absolutely. Uh, so, so yeah, I'm just going to struggle with that. But uh, but guys, I want to talk about uh, an, an issue pertaining to pop culture, uh, pertaining to the Oscars. There's been a lot of... Uh, a lot of dialogue about the Oscars for different reasons uh, here lately, but um, but the question is, why don't comedies win the Oscars? You know, it seems like comedies are, you know, when guys get together, especially these are the movies that we talk about. These are the movies that we quote from. Um, you know, so a lot of our kind of social cultural traction uh, happens around comedies, but yet um, comedies are never winning Best Picture, never getting sort of the the best actor nods, or really the big, you know, the big play at the Oscars. So uh, why why is that? You know, I find it, it's what's interesting about that is that when you, when you, when you hear like comedic actors that have, that can play both straight and, you know, comedy roles, they always say that comedy is the hardest thing to do. Yeah. Um, but it's true. It seems like, it seems like dramas are the only ones that ever get serious nods. You know, I, I mean, you can look at some brilliant comedies over the years and it's just one of those things where because they're comedies, you don't take them seriously as right. movies. So therefore you almost don't even take the acting very seriously that's in them, even yeah. though, I mean, it takes a, it takes a real talented, very specific kind of actor to actually pull it off and do it well and have it be something that's lasting and funny and something that will carry on through the generations. I mean, you know, you look back on something like the jerk from Steve Martin, that will always mm. be a funny movie. That'll always like sort of <laughs> you know, sort of, uh, you know, carry itself through all, you know, like a multi-generational thing. But, um, but nobody's ever going to, uh, I I think just the, the slapstick nature of it, um, gets attributed, gets carried over into the fact that nobody takes the acting job very seriously. I don't, and I don't know why, because, you know, we love, we love those movies, don't we? So I, I don't know. Baby, let me, let me ask you this. And I, I realize I'm saying baby a lot today. It's, it's the fatigue, you know. You know so don't apologize. Don't apologize. It's okay. That, you know. When we're tired, we go to you know. We just have our go-to phrases. They're sort it's of a, our, our safety. It's a net. comfort phrase, yeah. you know. Yeah, it's, it, it's it is. Like a it's a warm like, blanket. 
It's and a retired you know. He just starts book promoing. I mean, we, we all yeah, absolutely. <laughs> if he starts babbling about Leon's crump, we'll know that he's, that he's tired. <laughs> he's, he's a little sleepy today. It's all yeah, good. Right. Right. I'm, I'm coffeeed up. I'm good to go. Dude, uh, yeah. You know what? I almost said something inappropriate. <laughs> Never mind. Resonate recordings, the guys who cut things out that I almost say. Um, all right. So, Big R, what's your favorite comedy? And then I, I want to hear Pipe uh, address the same thing. I want to know what you guys like comedically. Uh, oh, man. I don't even see when, when somebody asked me my fave on something. I, I, I always blank out. I don't know. You know, here's the thing, right? I, I am... I am more of a drama guy, so I don't. Sure. I really don't watch a lot of comedies. I really don't. Um, so it, it has to. The, the most recent one I saw was a movie that came out last year called Spy, okay. with Melissa McCarthy and Jude oh, Law. Yeah. Kind of an ensemble cast for a, yep. for a comedy, and um, it was. I thought it was actually hilarious. It got great reviews. Too. I think Rodney Dude, she's Sanders funny. Like she's one hundred and twenty percent. Yeah, she she's a she's a really funny. She's legit. She's legit. Yeah. I mean, she's super talented, super funny. So that was great. My wife tends to really love comedies. I don't love them as much. So, um, really, that was the last one. She, she does. She likes, um, she just likes, uh, she likes her movie experiences to be really lighthearted. Whereas I want to be a little more, uh, transformed, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Challenge pipe. What about you, man? Which question, the favorite comedy or why don't, or the original question? You know what? I'm going to let you. Uh, I'm you going to let you choose? address them as you as you wish. All right. Well, in terms of favorite comedies, uh, I don't. No one comes to mind, but there's sort of an era of comedies from like 1990 to the early 2000s. That was so mm-hmm. so like Tommy Boyish on the front end to I'd say like Zoolander on on the back end where uh-huh. with you know the office uh, i'm sorry um office space, office space. the yep. office is also a hilarious tv show but office space is office space and tommy boy are probably my most quoted zoolanders right up there they're just nice. that's how kind of how i judge comedy does it provide me material that i can annoy coworkers with on a regular basis that's and a if, great point and if it does solid gold see and that's why like judd apatow's comedies just don't do it for me because I, they're just not that quotable it's a, it's a different style of comedy. I really like uh, some of the Coen Brothers stuff too. If on the sort of dark comedy absurdist side, uh, I think, yeah, yeah. like Oh Brother Where Art Thou is one of the funniest movies I've ever seen, and I can Dude, watch. See it. now, I got to be honest, I don't get that at all. It's, like, it's not like all their other movies, but right, there's so much hype around that movie though, and I and I watched it, and it it, it didn't hit home for me. It just didn't connect. Man. See, I, I want to like it because I feel like it's cool to like that movie. Well, and. I don't. I, I don't know if it's cool. I don't even think anybody really watches. I mean, it's it's an old movie now, but I. Yeah. It's just one of those things where like line after line hit my funny bone, and that's to mm-hmm. me that's what makes a good comedy is just like the comedic timing, and it just it consistently makes you laugh. The most me, most comedies provide a few laughs with lengthy gaps in between where you want to find it funny and you just don't. But the really good ones, it's just it's just laughs throughout. Yeah, I think the reason that they don't win Oscars is. In part, what Ronnie said, where since they're funny, they don't get taken seriously. Funny, mm. like funny, doesn't have any weight to it, even right. though it takes just as much or more work to create a movie that makes you laugh for ninety minutes. Um, and I think I think comedy is not seen as art; it's not performance art. So, yeah. not improv, not stand up, not even comedic writing. Anything that makes people laugh is seen as something. It's it's a lower form of art. And then we know that the Academy is just a bunch of, of pretentious people who wear berets 
And so they and have wa- man buns. They want movies that emotionally <laughs> manipulate people. And, yeah. and uh, so, I mean, we could, we could write out the formula of what wins an Oscar, you know, in terms right. of like, right. it, you know, some, somebody underprivileged, somebody uh, handicapped, somebody overcoming all odds. Usually there's a tear jerking moment. There's usually some major pain point and they're not bad movies usually, but usually they're just ones you look at and you go, that's an Oscar formula. Like that's, that's it's, it's completely predictable. And also something that comes out in the last two weeks of the year. Yes. Or add that to the right. Dude, you know what's fun about right now for me is that my boys are – they're getting to an age where I can start to show them all those sublime comedies from the, the era that you mentioned, Pipe. So uh, so I've shown my boys Tommy Boy. They've seen uh, – we, we actually just watched Mr. Deeds. Nice. Um, yeah, you, which have, these, have they seen Billy Madison? They have seen Billy Madison. Well done. Um, I'm probably a horrible father for letting them watch all these these movies. You are. How you much? Are. Did, how much did those movies screw us up? Uh, I'm I'm pretty screwed up, but I think not because of those movies at all. Yeah, you know? I, so I have to qualify it that way. And here's the thing: like it now, I realize this is a bit of a sliding scale. But uh, when I watch those now, and I think about how horrified some people were at how crass they were. <laughs> that those are mild, mild movies compared to this. Dude, they are almost they're, anything. It's hard to watch most comedies today because you just know that they're like I mean, even those, if those, even if they're hilarious, they're pure raunchy. Yeah, the Judd Apatow movies that you mentioned—they're so dark. You know, like I can't even really handle those movies because of how dark they are and depressing. Um, but yeah, those are sort of the the, the going comedies of uh, of the day. So yeah, by comparison, man, the stuff we. We kind of cut our teeth on was pretty uh, pretty harmless by comparison. Um, what, do you, well, what, guys, do you, what do you think, Ted? I mean, in terms of in terms of uh, comedies and Oscars, I mean, yeah, I don't I don't know. I think I think you guys have covered it pretty well. I mean, I I just think it, it, we were actually having this conversation this morning in this uh, in this marathon like curriculum planning meeting. You know, there there was an art professor there, and was he wearing know, a beret? No, he actually he was. You know, I said no just out of it was a knee jerk sort of need to protect him. But but I kid you not, you guys, as I sit here, he he wore a beret into the meeting. Um, oh, that's awesome. But anyway, this guy was like your your classic kind of professor type, type A, like ultra organized, ultra like you know. I've got fifty eight like Bloom's taxonomy reasons for everything that I do in class, and it just occurred to me like he's taking something that is essentially like really cool and enjoyable, which is looking at art and sort of neutering it of all its joy. You know what I mean? And I, yeah. and I think the Oscars kind of do the same thing. I mean, movies are, they're meant to fill a role in our lives that isn't primarily intellectual. You know what I mean? People don't, people don't often watch movies to be kind of intellectually challenged and, you know, but yet the Oscar is this, it's this sort of, uh, symbol of of pretension you know so well and to be um, honest the ones that are actually intellectually challenging like the ones that really challenge a viewpoint or really make you think usually don't win oscars it's usually the ones that make you think you're thinking and it's the ones that are heavy-handed about it and the ones that like spoon feed you whatever social issue is hot that an agenda film absolutely yeah they're in right and those those are the ones that get all the credibility or the agenda which is a shame you know it's a real it's a real shame so yeah, I mean, I guess, I guess for me with the comedies, I'm just glad that I'm glad they got made at all. I feel like we, you know, the three of us grew up during a really good era for comedies. I mean, I kind of got the, I'm old enough where I, I sort of got some of the great '80s ones too. You know, Blues Brothers was was one of the first movies oh, that I remember. That's so like, good. Really, really enjoying. Yeah, it's another one that I've shown the kids, and they and they love it. 
Um, but yeah, so funny. I mean, just so consistently funny every, every minute, every scene. Um, so yeah, man, I'm, I'm, I'm glad, I'm glad we had that. You know, I think there are a lot of things like that for us that, uh, that this generation doesn't have. And it's kind of a bummer for them. I, I was talking with my students the other night about, uh, about ballads, about the fact that in the eighties and nineties, we had all these, you know, amazing, sappy, sentimental ballads. And, and, uh, my student, one of my students reactions was, yeah, our generation doesn't do emotion. And no, uh, everything has to be ironic and disaffected. Right. Yeah. Everything's wry and ironic and arm's length and disaffected. And, and they're missing out on these great, uh, you know, these great ballads that we grew up on. So, um, you know, I hope we don't, I hope we don't become so wry and disaffected that we, uh, that we can't laugh at all. And um, that'll be a future rant topic, by the way, ballads. Yeah, ba- it should That's be a, a rant good choice. I could, I could talk about that for hours. Well, boys, kind of on that, man, along those lines of, uh, of talking to younger people and, and advising them and guiding them, uh, we had a reader suggest a question, which was, what advice would we give our 20-year-old selves? So if you can remember yourselves at 20, um, what kind of advice would you, would you give yourself? Mm. I, knowing my 20-year-old self, I'd be reluctant to give him any advice because mm-hmm. it would be throwing pearls before swine. Because <laughs> my twenty-year-old self didn't listen to anybody. Yeah, Which, and why is that pipe? That's uh, interesting. <clears throat> pure arrogance. Yes. Okay. I mean, I think just pure confidence that uh, that I knew all that I needed to know. I mean, I would never have said that, but when it yeah. came to giving me advice, I was certain that whatever I was already thinking is better than whatever you were saying. Yeah, yeah. Or that no. it was, um, or a twenty-year-old is even beyond that. A twenty-year-old is scared about what they don't know. That's what it yeah. really is. At the yep. end of the day, they're just fearful about what they don't know because they they know they don't know everything. They're just angry that they haven't gotten to a place that they can even fake it yet. It's it's yeah. It's it's not adolescence where you think you know everything. It's post adolescence where you've moved beyond that, but you're angry that you're not adult enough to sort of really progress and and. You don't have the humility to just say, I don't know. I didn't learn how to say, I don't know until, I don't know, five years ago. <laughs> until right. I don't know. That was, that was nice. That was yeah, a nice see? touch there. That yeah. was completely accidental, but see, I've learned. It's good radio. And, uh, but I mean, I, but I think, I think some, something ab- about the idea of you don't know everything and get really comfortable asking questions and being humble enough to ask questions and, and say that you don't know would be something that I really needed to learn at 20. You know what? Can you guys do something for me? Just a, an exercise since this is radio and not television. Um, could you take each of you like a, a minute or two and just describe your 20 year old self? Like what, what you look like, what you sounded like. Um, <laughs> well, I, I saw a picture of Ronnie today, uh, which maybe, maybe it was a, what was it? A wedding anniversary picture. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm guessing that was early twenties mm-hmm. for you. And wow. uh, yeah, he were you looked, guys together just having coffee, like showing wedding pictures to no, one? No, it was on Facebook. Oh, okay. He, he did the obligatory. He did the obligatory celebration on Facebook because if you don't, oh. it doesn't count. No, um, no, Ted. No, Ted. He was a Piper was coming through my town and he called me and we sat oh, down. Baby, and stop. We, uh, <laughs> and I said, I said, isn't today isn't today an important day for you? Isn't today your anniversary? <laughs> I just want to help you celebrate. You know, that's really why I'm here. I hope your wife doesn't mind that you're out with me instead of out with her. No, not, not at all. Not at all. It made it all the better. Topic, it all- you know, I'm still wounded. So <laughs> if you could just refrain from joking about it, I would. I'm I sorry, would- Big T. I know. I know. But if I know. Ronnie could describe himself from that picture, I mean, it was it was pretty spectacular. 
Oh, I'm sure it was. I you know, no- my 20 year old self, my or my 20, 22 year old self, whatever. It was a, uh, yeah, I think it was. It was one of those. It was one of those things where you're so me for me personally. I was just petrified of the future because I didn't think I was going to get where I wanted to go. Mm. And so for me, it was a mad scramble. I was mm. doing everything I could. And I was, you know, so to me, I was trying to get into the music industry. And mm. so to me, it was just a, it was a manic panic scramble into doing anything and everything I could to get to the place I wanted to go. Because there's something strange about when you turn 20 and 21 is you start feeling old. Mm. And, um, and you're kind of that post college age and you start feeling like, Hey, if I don't start accomplishing what I'm setting out to accomplish, I'm going to lose my whole life. And Mm. so you just sort of ignorantly and foolishly think that like, Oh no, I can see my mid twenties coming and mid twenties. That's like as old as my parents. And so you just start, (laughs) you start imagining just these crazy scenarios that makes you feel like you're already over the hill. At least for me, that's how it was. So I just was, if I could go back, I would just say, Brother, you got to be patient. You just got to mm-hmm. relax a little bit because uh, this this scrambling, this is not something that's going to end when you turn thirty if you haven't if you haven't taken care of it now. And, and certainly, I, I actually didn't when I yeah, turned thirty. Well said. Yeah. Well said. And and if you could, I mean, I'm just I'm just going to push you on this a little bit. Um, what was your like personal aesthetic at age twenty? I mean, and, and what I'm looking for here is just something to to laugh about. So let me be just clear and upfront about that. Yeah, I had a, uh, I had a, well, not, not in that picture, but just a little bit before that picture, mm-hmm. I had a curly man bun. How about that? Big Did you really? At, at age 20? When my hair gets long, it gets literally like curly, curly, like crazy, curly. like you would never know it. Like, 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 my like, weird, like weird Al Jerry curl kind of curly or what? Like, like at that age, it was not, co- that's my sister's hair, but it's close to that. Oh it's my. close to that. That's And so, special. yeah, I had a little curly uh, man bun going on, you know. Back in the day, unbelievable. There was, you know, love it. Pipe, what about you? Age twenty, uh, give us a little description. Um, I was I was twenty five pounds lighter than I am now, uh, which <laughs> yeah. doesn't mean much to most because this is audio. But yeah. uh, so I, I was like one hundred and seventy five pounds and six foot two, so I was kind of a rail, dude. Yeah, um, you're wiry, wiry I, strong. My personal aesthetic was, a really just. I didn't have a style. I was jeans and a t-shirt, basketball shorts and a t-shirt. I was all about comfort. I wasn't a slob, but I wasn't, I was not, you know, going and buying anything stylish because I, I chose to disdain people who spent lots of money on their appearance. That Dude, was, yeah, uh, that, that seems like the only card that you have to play at Wheaton if you don't have the budget to really go like all in North yeah, Face. You, you find something to be superior about. And Absol- I was superior over all the people who spent more money on their appearance and the Banana Republics and the Abercrombie and Fitches and whatever else was popular uh, when I was 20. So That's a really I, smart move, man. Yeah, you, you play the only card. That it is. Have. I mean, anything you can do to judge other people is usually a really good move and it's really Absolutely. good for your soul. Um, mm-hmm. No, I was a... I would say that I was an insecure person who masked it really well with an, an extremely confident uh, huh. outside. So now, were I, you like were you like activities guy at Wheaton? Were you on stage in chapel like doing that whole gig or what no? Kind I of guy were you? Um, inter, intramural sports and hanging out with friends, and okay. then uh, I was really involved at, at the church I was going to. So okay. that's I uh, another another way that I felt superior to my fellow college students because they were all investing in something that would be done after four years, and I was investing in something permanent. 
Um, and while I think that's a true statement, uh, my motive in it was more arrogant than not, mm. which which is something that was consistent throughout most of the reasons I did lots of stuff was was uh, sort of a self-justifying kind of thing. And that's part of that that insecurity. Like I just didn't have a good sense of who I was or why I was doing what I was doing or what I ought to be doing. So I it, it was a lot of just sort of grasping at things to make me feel better. Uh, almost all good stuff. Like it wasn't, sure. uh, sure. th- there are people who fill up the voids in their lives with, I don't know, drugs, alcohol, sex, and whatever else that happens at 20. But, uh, for me, it was mostly good stuff for a lot of the same reasons. And, but I, but I, I just sort of masked it with this extremely confident, outspoken, um, mm-hmm. kind of what, kind of what I am now, but without a lot of, <laughs> without anything behind it to sort of say, I, I actually know a little bit what I'm talking about. Whereas at 20, right. I was a moron. Who It just makes it even more self-deceptive at 20, isn't it? Right. It's just crazy. And yeah, know? so, so, and, and there was that sense of like, I'm inexperienced. I don't really know a lot of stuff, but I'm just going to talk louder because of that. Yeah. <laughs> nice. I think, Ted, what about you, pal? Lay that one out for us. Man. I was much less interesting than the two of you at 20, I think, in that for me at 20, I just, I was in college. I just lost like the love of my life, which was football. Um, I had two serious leg injuries and a a big operation and, and couldn't play. So I think I was, I was trying to adapt this different persona. I was like, uh, cut up like flannel shirt guy, work boots guy. Like I really embraced the whole like grunge ethos of the nineties. So I had like, I had 90s hair, i.e. sort of, you know, floppy and long on the top, but like shaved underneath. It was really bad. And I don't know, man, I was just kind of wandering around. I, I, I didn't have the same sense of conviction that I knew everything, but I was just trying to figure out who I was, you know. And I, and I think much like the culture that you had at Wheaton Barnabas, I was at Taylor. And at Taylor, you're either a – you either end up being a joiner or a deconstructor, and the joiners end up like on stage at chapel and getting photographed for like the admissions brochures and the deconstructors end up like hating all those kind people of, kind of wryly hating everybody. And I think, I think sadly I fell into that category and I, I think some of the, some of the early signs of insufferability were, were creeping up for me at 20. Like we, we read, uh, oh, what was the book by the, the, the one guy in, in Christianum who made like, White white people feel horrible about their their money. Oh, Ron Sider. Oh yeah, yeah. yep. <laughs> and the, he was the, the original. There, there's been a number yeah. who have come since then. Yeah, yeah. He was the original, like feel hor- horrible about money guy. And and I, I remember, I think I just got insufferable about social justice, and and I'm sure my parents just rolled their eyes and you know endured time with me at, at that point in my life. But uh, yeah, because they probably yeah, thought thank, the rapture was coming anyway. So it didn't thank really God matter. we don't end up there. You know what I mean? Like it. it, it and it gives me a, a renewed sense of sympathy for my my college students, you know, just sensing that, you know, the the insecurity that's in the room and yet the the false bravado and all the levels of of confidence, both real and contrived. But uh, well, if it's if it's any consolation to you, Ted, some yeah. things that my college professors said then mean a lot more to me now than they did when I was 20. That actually means a ton, man. It's I, a huge encouragement. I was pretty certain I was smarter than they were at 20. And yeah. now a lot of the things they've said are, are things that are still really helpful, informative. I mean, it's a handful of professors and a handful of sure. classes, but, uh, Absolutely. but yeah, there's 20 year olds absorb a lot that they don't, they do. that they don't think is important. And it'll come back around later when it, when, when they've learned the humility to listen to what they were taught. Interesting, man. Yeah, totally agree. And, uh, and yeah, that is a, that is a good word for sure. 
Well, fellas, we got time for one more topic. And uh, the topic, uh, this this is another one that came from a reader. And I feel like we've kind of we've kind of teased this out a little bit, maybe in the context of different conversations that we've had here on the program uh, over the course of our, our time together. But his question was, how should churches use business principles or should they? So, you know, there, there's this weird, you know, kind of conflating of there always has been, and there especially was in, in Grand Rapids where I, you know, where I taught before and, and really in, in Wheaton or the Chicago suburbs where you were Barnabas, just like church and money kind of always going together and church and business sort of going together. And, and you have all these quote unquote, like Christian businesses in Grand Rapids and um, everything just gets kind of hopelessly weird on that level, in my opinion. But uh, what do you guys think? Should, should churches use these business principles or, or not? Well, the way the guy asked the question, he said, he said, should churches use business principles since they're not businesses was, or, or something to yeah. that effect? I mean, it had an implication that the business principle is doesn't really fit in the church. And so he sounded uncomfortable with with how much that has become the case, you know, leadership principles and things like that. I guess I would try to reframe it and say uh when you hear business principle, you think like a for-profit kind of thing. It's about gain. Sure, sure. Um, if you think organizational principle, then it's a matter of more effectively leading people and putting people in a position to succeed and, and accomplishing goals and things like that. And I think those kinds of things can be incredibly beneficial in churches. So mm. a, a business principle doesn't necessarily mean something to make money. It means uh, it, it can mean something for the health of an organization. And as much as there are people who want church to be purely organic, it is an organization. It has leaders. It has it has different tiers of leadership, all of that. And so organizational principles are really, really helpful if sure. if they're not if they're not the purpose of the church. They just mm -hmm. have to be it, it's a it's a sort of a guiding methodology of of just how we how we organize things, how we set things set things up and plan things. Right. Right. Big R, what do you think? You're a pastor. Yeah, no, I think, uh, I think Piper's on point with that. You know, I think, um, you know, I, I think you got to consider the eras we're coming out of, right? So you come out of the seventies and the eighties and you had these big church growth movements. And then I think, think since then, you know, guys like me and guys before me have, have sort of, they've, they've sort of strived to go back to a more organic approach um, in the sense that we, we don't, we don't want to structure our churches in a way where it's made up of 17 committees and, you know, sure. 25 different boards and all this kind of thing, you know, just basically to facilitate the 906 programs that we've <laughs> tried to, you know, put into place. And right. so I, I, from, and, and I'm guessing, I'm guessing the, uh, the guy that wrote in the question is probably coming a little more at it from that angle, unless I'm wrong. And so I think if you, if you come at it from that side, you can say, well, you know, I, I, I get sort of the, uh, the, the sentiment behind that. And, and I, and I want to try to steer away from everything coming down to just simply being about principles and operating out of those principles and functioning out of those principles, business principles. But at the same time, I think, uh, you know, I think Barnabas is right. I think, um, you know, when we talk about organizationally and we talk about the way we're going to structure things, when we talk about delegation, when we talk about equipping, we can even say that those are actually biblical principles as mm -hmm. much as their business principles when they cross over that way. So I don't think it's just because something is coming from the business world or that's primarily where we, uh, where we see it applied that it, that it doesn't automatically apply to the church. 
Um, I, cause I think some of those things have, have a good amount of crossover between actually doing things, uh, in a, in a biblical way too. I feel like there's a there's a bit of a false dichotomy when when people draw that distinction because most people are drawing that distinction between you know mission driven churches and yeah. you know and growth driven churches or something like that and and there's a bit of it it's sort of like the sacred secular divide where people are yeah. going that's a secular business principle no that's yeah. just a principle that's a people principle the best yeah. leadership principles are ones that put people in better positions. They care for people better. They they put the leader in a position to to be more effective in whatever they're doing. And so that's just a people principle. And you see, I mean, you see it in Acts where the apostles look around and they go, we're not doing what we need to for the people in need. So what do they do? They appoint deacons. That's delegation. That's a layer of leadership. Absolutely. That's I mean, that's a role that is created. That's organizational stuff. And and that's leadership as a whole. So if you say secular business principle, uh, most of the time they're not secular. They're just principles. Uh, the secular yeah. ones are going to be ones that are that are greed or pride driven. And I think that's that's where the the discomfort often comes in is when when the principles are built around purely numeric growth, uh, purely increasing offering, purely raising up the people at the top to to positions of you know more. I don't know, grander or whatever. And that's, that's, but that's not a principle issue. That means that they don't have principles. Their their principles, that's a heart driven issue right there. Their principles have departed from, from scripture and from the gospel and have have landed. That is a a decidedly secular mindset. Well, you know, and it's funny because, and Ted, you can speak into this too, man, because you've been in in multi, you know, sort of church function and structure Mm -hmm. scenarios where, Mm -hmm. you know, I think, you know, we can become so hard lined one way with, with any of these things. Right. But I think, you know, you look at a church with 2000 people and man, it's going to have to function differently than a church of a hundred people. And it's, you're going to need some different kinds of support structures in place that are going to look a little more business driven then you have the luxury of doing when you have a church of 75 people, you know, where you just don't, you don't need to have those kinds of structures uh, in place, you know, and I think that's where a lot of the battling comes from, right? You got the small church guys who are, who have the luxury in a sense, and you guys know what I mean by this, they have the luxury mm-hmm. of being more missionally minded, quote unquote, and they're able to look at larger churches and go, yeah, but look at all the, look at all the money and look at, look at all the, all the committees and look at the, all the structures. And I feel like I'm just looking at a fortune 500 company. I don't even think I'm right. looking at a church anymore. It's like on one hand, they actually may be right. On the other hand, they may be just critical of a structure or an organizational structure that really needs to be in place so that the church can function better. Right. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I think small church pastors, you use the term luxury. I think that's true. If, if you know the name of 90% of your congregation, you you have a different luxury than than a any sort of ministry leader of of a church of you know three or four hundred plus where Absolutely. at best you know a third of the people um, or or at least know their names so yeah it, it's just and and I think both large churches and small churches have distinct benefits for the people there there's that that smaller familial thing is really good but at the same time the ability to pull off different sorts of of organ um, you know, outreaches, events, programs, those kinds of things are limited because funds are limited and people are limited. And the larger church often lacks that familial aspect, but that's not a business principle issue. That's just a, that's just a law of large numbers kind of thing. Big T. Yeah, guys, I think, I think for me where this gets really weird is where 
you see it the other way. You see companies like sort of operating with church principles and, you know, the, the, the quote unquote Christian company. Yes. Um, you know, the, with Andy Stanley quotes all over the wall and, and like for me, you're that talking was, parachurch, Ted? Uh, you know, I'm talking even like for profit companies that, that okay. we would run into around the Midwest sometimes where, you know, the, the, the sort of motivational sales meeting was bringing in like, you know, some kind of quasi spiritual uh, motivation and, um, I, I think that it just gets really confusing for people. And, and I think the points that you guys are making are good in that, you know, a bigger church has to look different than a smaller church just by, by nature of what it is. And I, and I even think that there's some, some freedom in that. I mean, I think at times when you're in a, when you're in a really small church that operates like a family, um, it can have a lot of the same problems that families have, i.e. certain people feeling less connected and being resentful and, um, you know, you, you, you get a little relief from that when your church gets a little bit bigger and a little more programmed in terms of, mm. you know, there being different options for people. So, you know, I, I think you guys have made, point, you know, really good points in that, you know, there's no, there's no one way that's more spiritual than the other. I mean, I, I think what the, what the reader was getting to, though, or the, the listener was that, you know, when our churches look so structured and so, you know, Fortune 500 in terms of, you know, the intentionality and the amenities and the, and the, the kind of, you know, the sense that everybody's sitting around meeting, you know, talking about marketing and how we're going to increase our reach. And, and, you know, when some of those things sort of find their way into church ministry, you do have to step back and go, wait a minute, like, what are we doing here? Are we trying to sell like memberships to a country club or are we trying to have, have church, you know? And I, and I, so I get the spirit of the question for sure. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Well, gentlemen, we have uh, we have done what we always do, which is to wander uh, to and fro through these topics. It's been uh, it's been great, man, and and far from being a, a drain emotionally, it's been uh, it's been good to chat with you guys today. So well, that's excellent to hear. Yeah, do you yeah. feel invigorated, you know, Big T? I wouldn't go that far, baby. I'm still uh, I'm still still dealing with some of the hurt of pipe being in my metro area and not talking uh, with me personally. You just need some time. You just need, I just some need time. a little time. Time heals a lot of wounds. You know, and maybe I need time to to grow more comfortable in this relational context. Maybe I'm just a slow mover on those things. Wow. Yeah. I wish Guys, I, there's I, a lot of repentance in the room today. I there there like really it. is. You know, maybe I'm too needy, pipe. You know what I mean? You strike me as the type. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Everything about me screams needy. Well, uh, gentlemen, this has been a blast. Uh, thanks, as always, to the guys at uh, Resonate Recordings for uh, cutting out the inappropriate things that I say and leaving in everything else. Uh, they will do the same for you if you are if you are so inclined. And uh, guys, we have uh, we have wandered to and fro. So until next time, Barnabas Piper. Are you concerned about tensions in the Middle East? Do you wonder where we're currently at in the biblical timeline? Are we really in the last days? Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. Carl Muller with the Inside the Epicenter podcast. Every week, my co-host, best-selling author Joel Rosenberg, and I answer those questions and more. You'll hear inside knowledge of our meetings with leaders at the highest levels of government in the U.S., Israel, and the Middle East equipping you to filter the news with biblically sound insights. Find Inside the Epicenter on your favorite podcast app or go to joshuafun.com to listen and subscribe.